Our text for this morning is found in Psalm 18. We're going to consider together this morning the last part of that psalm, consisting of verses 28 to 50. Psalm 18, verses 28 to 50. When we talked about the first part of this psalm, people of God, a number of weeks ago, then we saw that the first part of the psalm is concerned especially with the subject of deliverance from enemies. David there talks about how God had saved him from the oppressions and difficulties which his enemies had caused him. But the second part of the psalm is concerned with David's conquest of his enemies. And David here celebrates the fact that the Lord had given him victory over his enemies. This contrast between the first and second parts of the psalm can be clearly seen if you look first at verse 17 in the first part of the psalm. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. But then contrast that with what he says in verse 29 in the second part of the psalm, for by you I can run against a troop, by my God I can leap over a wall. In other words, it is very clear here in the second part of the psalm that David does not any longer consider his enemies to be too strong for him. Now one of the characteristics of this psalm is that frequently the last line or couple of lines of one section lead us into the next section. And I want to point you to a couple of examples of that. First in verse 3, we have, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. And I think that should be probably past tense. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so I was saved from my enemies. In verses 4 to 6, then, David gives us greater detail about that. We find him complaining in verses 4 and 5 about the pangs of death surrounding him and so on. And then in verse 6, going back to the subject of his prayer, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard me from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. This is even more clear if you look at the end of verse 19. In the section, that section, verses 16 to 19, David is talking about how the Lord delivered him from his enemies, and he concludes that section by saying, He delivered me because he delighted in me. Well, that because he delighted in me leads us directly into the next section, verses 20 to 24. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. In other words, David is now explaining what he meant by those words, because he delighted in me. Well, we have the same thing between the two major sections of the psalm, verses 27 and 28. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks, David says in verse 27. In verses 28 and following, he explains especially how the Lord brings down haughty looks by giving David 
victory over his enemies. Let's consider this part of the psalm then under the theme, the Lord gives victory. The Lord gives victory. First, David attributes his battle readiness to the Lord. That's verses 28 to 36. David attributes his battle readiness to the Lord. Secondly, David attributes his supremacy over his enemies to the Lord. That's verses 37 to 45. And finally, David praises the Lord for all his help. Verses 46 to 50. We begin then with verses 27 to 36, or 28 to 36, where David attributes his battle readiness to the Lord. Now David begins this section verses 20, in verses 28 and 29, I think with what we may call a kind of summary of the section as a whole. For you will light my lamp, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness, for by you I can run against the troop, by my God I can leap over a wall. That expression, you will light my lamp, is an expression that is probably somewhat unfamiliar to us. But it's an expression that's used in several places in the history of the kings of Israel, and especially, actually, in the history of David. Let's look at just one of those passages, 2 Samuel 21, verse 17. 2 Samuel 21, verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So David is there called the lamp of Israel, and here in Psalm 18 he says that the Lord lighted his lamp. That is a reference then to David's position as the anointed king of Israel. When David says, you lighted my lamp, he means that God anointed him to be king over Israel. He gave him that special position as king of his people, as an Old Testament Messiah. That means then that when he goes on to say that the Lord enlightened his darkness in the second part of the verse, that he is referring, I think, to the relative obscurity out of which God brought him when he anointed him to be king of Israel. David had been nothing just a shepherd boy in the hills of Bethlehem. But God had anointed him to be king, and through that anointing had given him prominence in the nation of Israel. And through that anointing, more importantly, in this context, had equipped him to do the work God called him to do. That's the really important thing. God, in other words, tied up with David's anointing a specific work, and for David that was the conquest of Israel's enemies, a specific work that David had to do in the strength and the qualifications of that anointing. 
just as the Holy Spirit came upon Samson to give him extraordinary strength to fight alone against the Philistines, and just as the Spirit of God came upon the prophets to equip them to speak the word of God to his people, so the Holy Spirit came upon David to equip him for his special task, the special task of leading God's people in war. And that's what this section, 28 to 36, is all about. How the Lord lighted his lamp, how the Lord anointed him to be king, and thus equipped him to be a leader of God's people. And in that act then also focused on David the hopes of God's people for the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The conquest of the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt, which is not, by the way, the Nile River, all the way to the river Euphrates. <clears throat> David is talking then about the fact that God anointed him and thus equipped him for this work of war. It follows then from this anointing that David speaks of in verse 28, that David has that strength and skill and confidence which he needs to fight against his enemies. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. The first line of that verse reminds us very much of Leviticus 26, verse 8, where God says, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. David is no longer afraid of his enemies, no longer complaining that his enemies are too strong for him. David will by himself run against a whole troop of his enemies and even leap over a wall behind which undoubtedly those enemies have entrenched themselves to defend themselves against him. There is no fear in him, and there is no fear in him because of the anointing of the Lord. Now when we go on then to verses 30 to 36, David begins over again, really. We said that verses 28 and 29 are a kind of summary. 30 to 36 then are the detailed exposition of these ideas that we've confronted in verses 28 and 29. And when David begins over again, here in verses 30 and th to 36, he starts at the very beginning. As for God, his way is perfect. As for God, his way is perfect. David is not even actually talking about himself and the application of this to himself here. He's making general statements about God. His way is perfect. That is, God has, from before the foundations of the world, determined everything that is going to happen. God has his own purposes and his own counsel with regard to everything that happens in the world, and he carries those purposes out to achieve his own ends, the glory of his name, the salvation of his people, the judgment of the wicked, the recreation of the world, and so on. All of these things are determined from before the foundations of the world, and that way of God is a perfect way, a way that is without flaw, a way that is perfect in wisdom, 
perfectly designed, in spite of the obscurity it has for us, perfectly designed to accomplish his purposes. His way is perfect. God then declares that way in the scriptures. And that word of God in which he declares his way is a proven word. His word is proven, David says next. So God has a way which he has determined. That way is perfect. God declares that way in his word. And that way, that word is proven. It's tested. It's faithful. It's steadfast. It's been shown to be a certain and true word by many, many events in past history. David has seen that way of God working out throughout history and has seen God's word coming to pass in history. And so he says, that word is proven. And one of the things, then, that God says in that word is that he will be a shield to all who trust in him. The last line of verse 30. The word of the Lord is proven. Well, this is one word that is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. And again, that, of course, has reference to many past events. God has been a shield to those who trusted in him. In fact, now that David has reviewed the history of his life up to this point, in the first part of this psalm, he can say that is true with regard to him. He, in fact, speaks of the Lord as his shield in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm. The Lord is a shield to those who trust in him. So again, you see how David focuses his attention on the fact that God's word is true and that specifically in this matter of warfare, God's word is true. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Why is that true? Well, that's verse 31. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? There are many gods in all the nations around David, but who is really God? Who is the one God who exists except the Lord, the God of Israel? And who therefore is a rock, a place of shelter and defense and refuge for those who trust in him except the God of Israel, except our God? For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? So David, you see, begins at the beginning with God. God enables him to run against the troop and to leap over a wall. It's here at this point then in verse 33 or verse 32 that David begins to detail specifically how the Lord equipped him personally for warfare. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. That word arms in the first line of the verse would be better translated girds. It is God who girds me with strength. That is God who gives me a belt of strength. God equips him then with strength for the warfare. 
God makes his way perfect. That's also a very striking statement taken in connection with what David says in verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. Now he says, he makes, not my way is, but he makes my way perfect. So David, looking back then now on what God has decreed from the foundations of the world, those perfect ways of God that have been eternally determined, says, through those ways of God, my way has become perfect. That is, God has designed my way perfectly to accomplish the purposes he has in me. And that relates specifically again to the conquest of Israel's enemies. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. A soldier, in those days especially, but even today, needs swiftness of foot to be an effective soldier. He needs to be able to chase his enemies and to overcome them quickly so that his enemies do not have a chance to recuperate and create new places of resistance. God gives David's feet swiftness, the swiftness of the feet of deer. He sets me on my high places. That is, he gives me places of defense, of rest, and of recuperation, and of reprovisioning where my enemies cannot reach me. He sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to war. That is, David can't fight unless he has proper training. Well, God gives him the training he needs. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. A bow of bronze would be the strongest and most difficult bow for a soldier to wield in those days. And that word bend here can even be, mean break. So David is talking here about a strength and skill which is able to handle the most difficult weapon of those times. <clears throat> You have also given me the shield of your salvation. God protects and defends him in this warfare that he has to engage in. Your right hand has held me up. David is, after all, only a man and not in himself a great man either. But he, need, he needs, therefore, the help of the Lord in this. The Lord will hold him up with his right hand. God has given him a great work to do, and so he needs greatness to accomplish it. Your gentleness has made me great. That too is a very striking thing, isn't it? In all this talk of warfare and of weapons and of, of warfare and of preparation for battle, what is it that the Lord, that David looks to in the Lord? Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me. As David pursues his enemies, he will need firm places for his feet so that his feet will not slip. God gives him wide paths on which to run. So God equips him for war in all these different ways, giving him a shield and a weapon, teaching him how to use it, making his way perfect, giving him paths to run on, giving him places of rest and defense. Everything that he needs in this warfare, God provides for him. In fact, that's the whole emphasis 
of this section. It is God who does this. If you look again through those verses we've just reviewed, people of God, you'll see that David mentions the name of God in almost every single line of those verses. I think there are only two lines in those eight or nine verses in which David does not mention the name of God or a personal pronoun that refers to God. It is God who does it. David attributes his battle readiness to the Lord. I think, people of God, that the Apostle Paul must have had this passage in mind when he wrote Ephesians chapter 6. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. There, too, Paul talks about a belt, the belt of truth, about feet, in this case, feet that are shed with the preparation of the gospel of peace, are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He talks about a shield, the shield of faith, about a weapon, an offensive weapon, not a bow this time, but the sword of the Spirit. We as Christians must be equipped for spiritual warfare by the armor of our God. Take up the whole armor of God. Let's go on then to the second section here, verses uh, 37 to 45. In this section, David attributes his supremacy over his enemies to the Lord. I chose to use that word supremacy here rather than victory because David's emphasis in this section is not just on victory, but also on supremacy, that is, on the rule or dominion that came to him as a result of his victories. And that's how we're going to divide the section as well. In verses 37 to 42, David talks about his victories, and in verses 43 to 45, about the consequences of those victories. In verses 37 to 42, then, David talks first about himself. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them, neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. We have two progressive parallelisms there. He pursued his enemies. He overtook them. He did not turn back until they were destroyed. And then again, he wounded them. That wound was so serious that they could not rise again. And because they could not rise, they fell under his feet so that they came under his dominion, but also so that he could trample them, as the scriptures sometimes talk about with regard to enemies. But the emphasis here in these two verses is on David, you see. I did these things. I pursued them. I overtook them. I did not turn back. I wounded them. I trampled them. But why? 
How was he able to do it? Well, that's verses 39 and 40. And here again, you see how he turns to the Lord. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. God armed him, again girded him, with strength for the battle. David refers back to verse 30. I'm sorry, not verse 30. Verse 32, where he talks of God girding him with strength. God here girds him with strength for the battle. In other words, in verse 32, the preparation of strength is general. God's preparing him for battle. Now David is in battle, and God continues to gird him with strength, even in the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. All David's enemies are subdued. You have given me the necks of my enemies, either to bend those necks to the yoke of David or to hew those necks and destroy them who hated him. So that's verses 39 and 40. It's attributed to the Lord. David's victory is attributed to the Lord. Now in verses 41 and 42, David turns his attention to his enemies and looks at this whole situation from the perspective of his, of his enemies. In the first two verses, from his own perspective. In the second two verses, from the perspective of the Lord. And now from the perspective of his enemies. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. They cried out in the battle, which they were losing. They cried for help. And they cried even to David's God, seeing that David's God was superior to their own gods. They cried to David's God. But the Lord did not answer. He was on David's side. And so David beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. That's the completeness of their destruction. They have become as inconsequential as dust before the wind. He cast them out like dirt in the streets. That's their contemptibility. They have become so negligible, so contemptible, that David can cast them out like a housewife casts out the sweepings from her house into the streets. So that's, again, attributing his victories to the Lord. Now in verses 43 to 45, he talks about the consequences of this. And the first consequence is that he has delivered, God has delivered him from the strivings of the people. I think the idea there is simply that God has made opposition to David to cease. His enemies have been completely subdued. David has come into a time of peace, and we read about that in 2 Samuel. After David had given him victory, or God had given him victory over his enemies, David had a time of peace. We read about it even in the introduction to this psalm. He spoke the Lord to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. In the second place, he became the head of the nations. David 
was anointed to be king of Israel, but in the work God had given him to do, he became king not just of Israel, but of the nations around Israel. They were forced to submit to him, to submit to the dominion of this great king whom the Lord had anointed, and to pay tribute to him, and to do not as they willed, but as David willed, as the servant of the Lord. This was so true, in fact, that there were many in those nations, and even some of those nations, whom David had not known. David and the people of Israel would never have thought of conquering these nations. A people I have not known, he says, shall serve me. And then in verse four, verses 44 and 45, he takes a little different tack and talks not about enemies whom he defeated in battle, but about enemies who heard about him and about the greatness of his power and simply gave up hope before they ever engaged in battle, surrendered themselves to him without any need for him to conquer them. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away. That is, they take themselves out of this picture of warfare altogether. It's no, there is no need for me to fight. They come frightened from their hideouts because of David's reputation. But again, it is of the Lord. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nation. That brings us to the third section here, verses 46 to 50, where David praises the Lord for all his help. Now I think, people of God, as we look at this section, that the best way to consider it is to divide it again into two parts. Verses 46 to 48 first, where David praises the Lord in verse 46 and gives the reason for that praise in verses 47 and 48. And then verses 49 and 50, where David again praises the Lord in verse 49 and gives the reason for that praise in verse 50. So David begins with praise of the Lord. The Lord lives. He begins with a simple statement of fact. The Lord lives. In contrast with the gods of the nations around, this God, the God of Israel, Jehovah, is the Lord who lives. That's been proven, faithfully and fully proven, by all that God has done for David in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. That's praise, people of God, for personal benefits received. That's the idea of that word blessed. It's praise, but it's praise for benefits received. Therefore, too, let the God of my salvation be exalted. Now, as I said, in verses 47 and 48, David gives the reasons for this praise. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. David, I think, therefore, there, in that verse, looks back to verses 37 to 45, 
where he talks about God giving him victory over his enemies. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. In verse 48, on the other hand, he looks back to the first part of the psalm. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. And that singular violent man may even there be a reference to King Saul. So David looks back at his life up to this point and all the deliverances wrought for him up to this time and all the victories he has achieved by the grace of God in him, by the anointing of God's Spirit upon him. And he gives thanks and praise to the Lord for it. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. Now if we go on to verses 49 and 50, David again praises the Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praise to your name. David resolves here to give praise. He has given praise in verse 46. Now he resolves to give praise among the nations. That word Gentiles here is the same word which is used earlier and translated nations in um, verse 43. You have made me the head of the nations. Same word that we have there. David therefore says here that he will go out among these nations whom he has subdued and he will make clear to them that it was not by his strength that they were conquered but that it was by the strength of the Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. And then in verse 50, again, the reason great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed. This is the first time that David actually, in the course of this psalm, uses the word king. We've seen that David has made references, indirect references, to that kingship throughout the psalm, but he has not actually spoken of himself as king until this point. He refers to himself, for example, in the introduction to the psalm, as the servant of the Lord. That's in his position as king. We spoke, talked a little earlier about how God lighted his lamp, and that's a reference to David's anointing. And we saw in verse 43 that God made him the head of the nations. David hasn't used the word king yet. Now suddenly he comes to this word king. Why does he come to it here? Because his vision is broadening. All through the psalm up to this point, he has really been talking about himself, about what God has done for him, how God has delivered him from his enemies, and how God has given to him, David, personally victory over his enemies. But this has all been, people of God, in the context of the fact that David is king. King of God's people. And so these victories and these deliverances are not just for David, but for all the people of God. And that's the point that David wants us to get hold of here. This is not just for David. This is not just a celebration of personal, private benefits that the Lord has given to David. It is a celebration of victories and deliverances given to his whole people through David 
the great king whom God had anointed. And then he goes a step further in the very last line of the psalm. Again, people of God, up to this point in the psalm, David has been looking at the past. He's been talking about all that God has done for him and for his people now in the past. The deliverances and the victories accomplished. Suddenly here, in the very last line of the psalm, and only here in this line, David looks to the future. And he says, these deliverances and this mercy that have been shown to me are not just for me, but for my descendants. He looks down then the long line of kings who will come out of his loins and who will rule over the people of God. And he says, what God has done for me, he will also do for my descendants. And of course, included among those descendants is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his psalm, as much as it is David's, more than it is David's. It is Christ, our Lord, in this psalm, celebrating the deliverances God had given to him, the victories God had given to him over his enemies and the enemies of his people. That's why I read people of God from Revelation chapter 19. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is Christ our Lord, people of God, who rides forth on that white horse, conquering and to conquer. He bears the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, for his name is the Word of God, and out of his mouth comes that Word of God, as a sharp sword to smite the nations. It is by his gospel that he goes out conquering and to conquer. And it is in him, people of God, that we also go out conquering and to conquer. We bear no bows of bronze. We carry no swords of steel. We speak instead the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, to strike the nations. By that sword of the Spirit, we too shall have victory. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen.